0: You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. <laughs>
1: yes. Hello. Good evening. You're very welcome. I did Martin say that to you already. It's my great pleasure and delight to introduce to you Michael Andretti, who is, uh, as you all know, one of our great writers. He, um, I, I read him before I ever wrote a word of prose myself. He had a galvanising, indelible effect uh, on my ears <laughs> 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 um, and on my writing practice. Uh, so it's a great honour to talk to him now about his latest novel, Warlight. Um, being one of those one of the best-known writers around and, and successful in a very worldly sense since the success of The English Patient, which went into Hollywood and all kinds of razzmatazz, the surprising and lovely thing about Michael's work is um, how lacking in grandiosity it is and how gently the words lie on the page. So uh, it is the about small people in monumental times, but it itself is the opposite of monumental. Um, And I warmly recommend this book to you, which is on sale in the foyer. Luckily. (laughs) (laughs) And don't be like the Irish audience that says, oh, I didn't want to bother him for a signature. (laughs) (laughs) Be like the English audience that says, would you mind? (laughs) Um, so, Michael, you're very welcome to Dublin Town. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, tell me a little bit about the genesis of the book. It's seven years, in the, in, seven years to print, yes? I think it's five years. I, I hope it was just five years. Oh, never count. I shouldn't have counted. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah,
0: how did it begin? You know, it, it's usually, I've been able to say with other books, that it began with this one image, you know, like the patient and the nurse talking and then that got bigger and bigger and became the English patient or um, an interest in jazz um, that led to coming through slaughter books like that. but this one i didn 't really have a real idea uh, for the book and and I kept saying to myself even when I was into, into it for a year or two, why am I writing this? It was a kind of strange so it was a, there was a, even more uncertainty than I had usually. Um, but I, I think what came to mind quite early on was I did want to write a book about a specific time, um, a time when war became peace. Oh. And so this was in that generation, 1945. And it had to be England. You know, so it was London, 1945. And because I think those two things, that's all I really need to have to begin a book. I, I don't have a a theme or a huge plot. Just a moment.
1: sense of transition.
0: Yeah. So it was a transition, but also I needed to have a location. Okay? Yes. And uh, it couldn't be... Otherwise, the, the the book would sort of drift off like a balloon or something mm. like that. I needed to have a, a real place that I could...
1: And in these early years of the of the writing, before a structure announced itself or a mm-hmm. form, were you working more visually, or did you? Mm. How, was it atmospheric, or was it... Uh it became
0: atmospheric, but it was really, I want to have a kind of, uh, the, find, find the right voice for it. And it, uh, so it became a book where, practically, the first sentence, this narrator who's about 14 years old at the time, says, in 1945, our parents went away and left us in the company with two men who may have been criminals. So that set up a kind of tone uh, but so, And that kind of helped create the voice of someone who was, wasn't judgmental at that point.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. so that was, that was the, because uh, sometimes when you're looking for the voice and then two years in, in, in my ghastly yeah. writing life, I'd say, oh, it was there all along, but yeah. I just didn't recognize it, Right, you know? No, it, it's really, so yeah. You're, it
0: really is finding the voice that gets you going and, and allows you to kind of travel in the story.
1: Or what aspect of your voice it is, and yeah. it was perhaps that... Absence of judgment, is that what
0: it was? Well, absence of judgment, but also he it's a sort of damaged voice and he doesn't know it. Ha. Huh. You know? Yeah. Um, or he's damaged and he doesn't know it. And so th- that was there in the book. But anyway, so the the parents leave right away in the first sentence, practically. And there there's a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old sister left there, and they have to then... Adapt themselves in some way.
1: You would think that's damage enough, but actually, you're looking for some other damage somehow in the voice or what he uh, doesn't. Well, that, know. that is enough
0: for sure. And, but yes. But I, I think and, and that damage, he's not really aware of the damage. Okay. So I think okay. he's, yeah, yeah. he's he in fact. I mean, I'm, I'm being in, in uh, I think in Germany, and and I met some filmmaker who gave uh, kids in a classroom. Uh, movie cameras to make a film in one day. And he said, well, so what do you, how do you begin? And most of them said, the parents go away. Yes. You know, so, and, and it, it is a book about parents going away and, and leaving two young youths, you know, to be looked after by two dubious people. So that, that was already interesting to me as a situation. So it's know.
1: a brother and a sister.
0: A brother and a sister. Yeah. Nathaniel and Rachel and um, a character called the Moth, and there's another character who turns up called the Darter, who's an ex-boxer, and then a woman named Olive Lawrence. And so the house gets taken over by the friends of these supposed guardians, in a way.
1: When you say the Darter, like that, it sounds so English, I can't tell you.
0: The Darter? Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) it somehow sounds like this is a kind of London English sort of, it is a very yeah. London English character.
0: Yeah. Was Dickens a big um, big uh, influence uh, he, in he, the farce? He has never been a big influence on me, you know. I mean, uh-huh. um, I mean apart from reading you know, three or four of those books, I wasn't a huge Dickens fan, uh-huh. but actually I, th- I think I must have picked up a lot of Dickens <laughs> subliminally because yes. it is a kind of uh, illegal version of London or a, a version of London that isn't usually there. And, and that's what, what interested me, you know. So the
1: underside, now, these two characters, the moth and the Darter bring in, f- there are female presences in yeah, the book as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, there's a woman named Olive Lawrence, and then, then there's a beekeeper, and then there's an opera singer, and you know, they're not all fully fleshed out in the end, but several of them are fleshed out, surprisingly, you know.
1: So, just to give us a, a sense of the book, you, you're going to read a little bit about the wonderfully named Olive Lawrence. Right. right. Yeah? Sure. Show you that now. Will we yeah. do that and then?
0: We'll talk. And
1: then we'll talk <laughs> about Dickens or not about Dickens.
0: Yeah, could be Dickens.
1: A bit of Dickens.
0: <clears throat> a woman who was going out with a daughter had begun strolling to my parents' house accompanying him or arriving at whatever hour she was supposed to meet him there. On our first visit, the daughter arrived too late to explain who she was, so my sister and I, just home from school, were left to introduce ourselves in the vacuum created by his absence. It meant we got a good look at her. We were careful not to mention other females the daughter had already escorted into the house, so we answered her questions about him rather stupidly as if we could not remember much about his associates or even what he did or where he might be. We knew he liked to breast his cards. Still, Olive Lawrence was a surprise. For someone like the daughter who was so one-sided in his opinions as to the role women ought to have in the world, he appeared to have an almost suicidal tendency to select highly independent women to go out with. They were tested right away by being taken to crowded and noise filled sports events at Whitechapel or Wembley Stadium, where there was no possibility of private conversation. The triple forecast bets were supposed to provide enough excitement for them. Yet the women he was attracted to seemed to be in no way humble or easily persuaded women who would happily exist under his rules. One was a painter of murals, another, after Olive Lawrence departed, was an argumentative Russian. Olive, who appeared alone that first afternoon, so that the three of us had to introduce ourselves, was a geographer and ethnographer. She was, she told us, often in the Hebrides, recording wind currents, at other times in the Far East, being a solitary traveler. There was something in these professional women that suggested it was not the case of the data selecting them, but of the women choosing him, as if Olive's Olive, a specialist in distant cultures, had stumbled suddenly on a man who had reminded her of an almost extinct med- medieval species, a person still unaware of any of the principal courtesies introduced in the last hundred years. The hour Olive Lawrence spent with us as she waited for his, her new beau was given over to telling us in a somewhat amazed voice about the first dinner they had shared. He had found her among the moth's friends, and then steered her to a Greek restaurant, a narrow rectangle of a place with five tables and submarine lighting. Then proposed a seal of newly formed intimacy that had not in fact occurred yet, but would shortly, with the sharing of a meal of goat and a bottle of red wine. Did something cross her mind then, some gale warning or other? But she acquiesced. And bring us the cooked head. He requested of the waiter. The horrific sentence was said so casually that he could have been asking for a sprig of fennel. She paled at the mansion of the goat head, and the nearby customers proceeded to store their own meals in order to witness the oncoming domestic contest. The daughter may not have liked theater, but what followed was a Strindberg-like performance that lasted an hour and a half, with five or six couples watching them. We knew the daughter was a quick scoffer, because whenever we traveled with him during the dog racing season, he'd crack open and consume a couple of raw eggs while driving his Morris, then toss the shells into the back seat. But in the Greek restaurant, he took his time. Olive Lawrence sat on a stiff backed kitchen chair in front of us and reenacted the moment, describing every insistence and refusal when she had to be convinced or persuaded or bullied, as well as maybe charmed. She was not quite sure which. She no longer knew. It was all confusing as a nightmare. Into eating the carcass of a goat slaughtered, she was sure, in someone's basement near Paddington. Then the head. The daughter had won, it appeared. And the intimacy he was expecting did occur a few hours later in his flat. The Two bottles of wine had helped, she told us, still downcast. Or perhaps it was because he had believed so securely he was right, that he was not arguing about consuming the goat's head and the one eye she had to swallow in a vindictive, in a vindictive way. The eye had the texture of snot. She actually used that word. And the head had the texture of, of what? She did not know. She ate it because she'd tell he believed in it. It was something she would never forget. By the time the daughter arrived at our house, full of not very convincing excuses for being late, we had decided we liked her. She'd spoken to us of Asia and the ends of the earth as if they were distant boroughs of London, easily reachable. She spoke about these places in a voice unlike the beleaguered one she'd used to describe her Greek meal. When we asked her what she did for her job, she told us exactly what she did. Ethnography, she said slowing the syllables as if we should write the word down fragment by fragment. She spoke of her pleasures as a traveler, told us that in the river deltas of southern India, she had drifted on a boat with just a minimal two-stroke motor somewhere in its bowels. She described the speed of monsoons. You were sopping wet, and five minutes later, your clothes were dried by the sun. She spoke of a pink-lit tent that housed a small statue of a minor god, at ease in its shade while the world outside was devastated by heat. She was providing us with descriptions our distant mother might have sent in letters. Her talk sparkled. Like the dada, she was tall and slim, with a dazzle of unkempt hair, shaped and reshaped, I'm sure, by, by whatever weather she was in, an independent creature. I suspect she would have eaten a goat if she had slain it herself in some Turkish meadow. The indoor world of London must have made her restless. In retrospect, it was probably the extreme difference between her and the daughter that allowed her, allowed their attachment to last longer than we expected. Yet whatever her fascination for, whatever his fascination for her, she also seemed itching to be on her way. Perhaps she was on a break and needed to remain in London writing her reports, after which she would be off again. That small god, in its pink tent had to be revisited. It meant leaving every attachment and domestic utensil behind. Olive was the one person who came into our house who appeared capable of clear judgment. She was consistent in her views of the daughter, appalled, as well as charmed and fascinated, she told us, by the consummately male taste evident in his disorganized flat. And i had also seen her regard the moth as she was never quite certain if he were a positive or negative force. What was his hold on the data, her present temporary lover? And was he a benign guardian to the orphan-like boy and girl she had come to know? She always focused on the possibility of character. She weighed character, could discover in a few grains of a person, even in one's noncommittal silence. Half of life, half the life of cities occurs at night, Olive Lawrence once warned us. There's a more uncertain morality then. At night, there are those who eat flesh by necessity. They might eat a bird, a small dog. When Olive spoke, it was more like a private shuffling of her thoughts, a soliloquy from somewhere in the shadows of her knowledge, an idea she was still unsure about. One evening, she insisted we catch a bus with her to Stratham Common and walk its slow rise of land to the rookery. Rachel felt uncertain in that open darkness, wished to go home, said it was cold. But the three of us kept moving forward until we were eventually in the trees and the city had evaporated behind us. Around us were untranslatable sounds, something in flight, a series of footfalls. I could hear Rachel's voice and breath, but there was no sound from all of Then, in the dark, she began to talk, to distinguish the barely heard noises for us. It's a warm evening. The pitch of those crickets is in D. They have that sweet, quiet whistle, but it's made with the rub of their wings, not by breath. And this much conversation means there will be rain. Listen. We saw her hand point near us to the left. That scrape is a badger, not digging, just his paws moving. Really is something tender. Perhaps the end of a f- fearful dream, just the remains of some small uneven nightmare in his head. We all have nightmares. For you, dear Rachel, it might be imagining the fear of a seizure. But there need not be fear in a dream. Just as there's no danger from the rain while we are under the trees, fighting rarely comes during this month. We are safe. Let's walk on. The crickets might move with us. The branches and underbrush appear to be full of them, full of high C's and D's. It feels like an important night for them. Remember that. Your own story is just one, and perhaps not the important one. The self is not the principal thing. Hers was the calmest voice I knew when I was a boy. There was never argument in it. She had just this tactile curiosity about what interested her, and that calmness allowed you, to, allowed you to be within her intimate space. In daylight, she always caught your eye as she talked, or as she listened. She was completely with you, as she was with us, the two, with the two of us that night, a night she wanted us to remember, as I have. Rachel and I would not have walked through the darkness of that forest alone but we were confident that Olive Lawrence had some tracing in her head from a faint light in the distance or a shift of wind that told her exactly where she was and what she was going towards. There were other times, however, when a different ease took over and she'd fall asleep, unconcerned, in my father's leather chair at Ravigny Gardens, her feet tucked under her, even if the room was full of the moth's friends. The look on her face still intent, focused, as if continuing to receive information. She was the first woman, in fact, the first person I ever saw do that, sleep so casually in the presence of others without guilt, then wake refreshed half an hour later when others were beginning to tire and stride off into the night, refusing the data's not too convincing offer to drive her home, as if she now wished to walk through the city alone. The new thought. I would go upstairs and watch it from my bedroom window as she entered and passed each pool of streetlight. I could hear her whistling faintly, as if recalling a tune, something unknown to me. In spite of our night journeys, I knew Olive's profession usually meant daylight work, measuring the effects of nature on coastlines. She had worked apparently within the Admiralty on sea currents and tides, barely out of her team during the first stage of the war. There were all these landscapes within her. She could read the noise of forests. She had timed the rhythm of the tidal slop along the embankment at Battersea Bridge. I'm always curious why Rachel and I never ventured into a life like hers and a vivid example of independence as well as empathy for everything around her. But you must remember, we did not know Olive Lawrence for that long. Though the night walks, accompanying her along the bombed-out dark lands or into the echoing Greenwich foot tunnel, our three voices singing a lyric she was teaching us under stars, chilled by the winter, under an August moon, I will not forget. She was tall, lithe. She must have been lithe, I suppose, with the daughter when she was his lover for the brief period of that unlikely relationship. I don't know, I don't know. What does the boy know? I always saw her during that time as self-sufficient. For instance, when she stepped in our semi-crowded living room in a state of separateness from all the others. Is this the censorship or tact of the young? I can no more easily see her I can more easily see her embracing a dog lying on the floor beside it, the weight of its head on her throat, so she is scarcely able to breathe, but content to let the animal remained there that way, but a man dancing close to her, I imagined a response of claustrophobia in her. She thrilled to open space and weather nights as if she could never be contained or fully revealed there. I'll send you to a postcard, Olive Lawrence said when she eventually left London and then was gone from our lives. But somewhere on the borders of the Black Sea or some small village post office near Alexandria, she would indeed mail us a platonic billet doux about a cloud system in the mountains that suggested an alternative world, her other life. The postcards became our treasures, especially as we knew there was now no communication between her and the data. She had journeyed out of his life without a backward glance. The idea of a woman mailing a postcard as part of a promise to two children far away indicated an expansiveness as well as aloneness, a hidden need in her. It signaled two very different states, though perhaps not. What did that boy know? But there are moments after I put down such thoughts about Olive Lawrence when I almost believe that I'm composing a possible version of my mother while she was away doing something I knew nothing about. Both these women were in unknown locations, though of course it was only Olive who courteously and beyond the call of duty, mailed postcards to us from wherever she was. And there's a third corner of the triangle these two women made up, which I also consider now. It is Rachel who needed a close relationship with a mother during that time to protect her in the way a mother could. She had walked between Olive and me that night, up the slow incline of Hill into Stratham Woods, being told that when she was in the darkness with us, there would be no danger, that there was no danger even in dreams or during the unstable tumult of her seizures. There were only crickets and song above us, only the scratch of a badger as it turned in comfort toward only the hush and then the sudden whisper of the oncoming rain. But of course, there would be danger.
1: Uh, So uh, that was wonderful. And um, Olive is a a wanderer and adrift. I was just noting the words as as they passed by. This sense that the the night as as a as as the flip side of the day mm-hmm. and the way that she finds languages within other languages and mm-hmm. other lives, and mm-hmm. people often use the word decentering about your your work mm. that it's about about other things yeah. happening that yeah. you're always on the lookout for
0: other things other things <laughs> yeah. the other thing, yeah. whatever
1: that was. So that's not a question. It's not very useful. Um, uh, but uh, talk to me a little bit. I, I read an interview with you done in the Toronto Star, that wonderful mm. newspaper. Mm. And um, someone said there are a lot of maps in the book, and you said, "Are there?" <laughs> and of course, and then he said, "Well, there's a room full of maps in the book." And there yeah. is, in fact. Yeah, there are a there. lot of maps. And I'll then you, you like realise, oh, he has. Okay, oh, yeah, no, that's. Oh, I, oh, it seems you remembered your book or you saw yeah. that, in fact, there are a lot of maps, but yeah. there are, as, as Olive Lawrence has showed, other, other languages, other ways of seeing the world, mm-hmm. other networks, other road systems.
0: You know, it, it was a very strange chapter that I wrote there, but for me, you know, because I wasn't expecting all this to happen. You know, but I, I really, I honestly I began that chapter thinking that would be a small thing about Olive Lawrence, who was yes. the daughter's temporary girlfriend and i didn't even know it was going to be a paragraph but suddenly then the story of the goat and then that and and the fact that she sort of accepted the fact that she she should eat the goat because he sort of believed in it and then that led to this character who was fascinating to me you know i mean i just became more and more enthralled with her yes and it wasn't a prepared chapter it wasn't a prepared portrait and um usually you know characters Evolve in my books quite slowly and over a period of time, so that those two sisters in Divisadero will eventually become recognizable and, and as a certain kind of person. But this chapter kind of came bang, you know, for me, and so that was a surprise. And and of course, she is saying all those things that I, you know, in some ways, uh, am interested in. Mm. The other, the, the the birds that, you know, what is important. Their story is perhaps more important than yours, yes. and all, all that. And so. I, mean, I didn't realize till later that I, I thought it was going to be a chapter on Nathaniel giving us support of her, but she's really describing their situation, and she's the one who's, you know, um, revealing them them in a way. Ultimately. And then
1: elsewhere, she's not just other, but she's also then elsewhere, and she mm-hmm. sends them back these right. messages yeah. from from elsewhere. Yeah,
0: and it was a way of having the mother evident in the story as well yes. at that point. You yes. Know? yes.
1: I, I, I mean, Olive Lawrence is really important to the book. It's like mm. if it was a kind of tangent and turned into a road, or you didn't know. She's essential to the book, but she's not essential to the plot. Mm. So, so, so. There are. There's a difference between the book and the plot. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which is also lovely. Mm-hmm. That you. Do you know what I mean? That mm. that, that that the plot. Because what Olive is doing, what the darter is doing, these things become slowly apparent. Did mm-hmm. you know what they were? What they were all up to? No, no, I, no? Mean, I
0: didn't. I, I didn't know. I mean, I, um, you know, it, it was a book of discovery. You know, I mean, I'm, I've always said that there is a kind of archaeological element in in, a, in a uh-huh. book. You are kind of discovering who the patient is, or whatever the the, the the mystery of it is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, certainly, I mean, I knew that the mother was going to come back. At some point, okay, but that's all I knew, and, and I, but in what form or what it was, and um, but it really was a book of kind of discovering what the story was through incident. You know, I mean, it is a kind of you know the boy is fourteen and he's gradually finding, and um, the data takes him on adventures that involve smuggling greyhounds, which seems like an un- unlikely plot turn, but you know that becomes part of the story and. Um, he becomes fascinated with this f- free world for a while, you know. And, and
1: it's a whole other map as well, yeah. because it's the map of the waterways of the Thames, which right. you, you did a, a, a kind of a lot of research into. Where you yeah. were on barges at night? And, uh,
0: no, I, I was in barge during the day, imagining I was at night. Okay.
1: <laughs> day for night, shooting day for night, as they yeah, used to say. Yeah, yeah.
0: But I did get to talk to a lot of barge people and river people, and, you know, and um,
1: that wonderful word lighter lighterman
0: lighterman yeah. yeah that's yeah and one of the guys I talked to I, I, he came to my, my launch in london and he said someone just approached me to do a book about being a waterman or something like that so that was it was very exciting and
1: and these are people who know all the they know
0: the rivers i mean they, they they know the history of the thames i mean it's it's a it's a great history you know i mean the fact that during the war three fake bridges had been built nearer to the estuary so that the the bombers who were coming in and counting how many bridges there were, so they had to bomb the fourth bridge. In fact, it was all the timing was wrong.
1: And you talk about London being made for the duration into a kind of theatre set. Um, Hmm. I think in the book, do you say that? About about the Ravigny Gardens, about the
0: house. Yeah, But
1: that the bridges appear in the book and there's this idea that everybody was in a drama, but also in a fake place for right, a while. Right, you know, it said yeah. that it was literally the theater of war, yeah. not the theater of war that we, you know, like, but but a different exactly, kind yeah, of theater. yeah, yeah. Um, and that they're all involved in in complex and spinning sort of events.
0: Mm-hmm. So the, even though someone like the who seems at first glance a kind of alienating character becomes more and more interesting. And, and I guess in that way, for me, because of the, I mean, usually some of my books, the the characters turn up in the first twenty or pages and we don't really see them very much again. And this one, I think, Olive keeps coming back, Mm -hmm. the daughter keeps coming back, the moth keeps coming back, uh, the mother keeps coming back. So suddenly, you know, there's a continual a sense of things
1: enduring, yeah, yeah, are changing, right, or revealing themselves into. uh, Yeah, uh, yeah. I I have a theory that imagining is what the child does when the mother leaves the room. This is what the infant does. this is how, right. when we start imagining things right. You right. see babies in their cots and they're you know they're making things up clearly and ooh, and there and what it, And it's when you're out of the room and you come yeah. back in and they don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but a, 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 a huge amount of this book or it, it takes place when the mother is elsewhere. It's yeah. about the mother being elsewhere. Right. In, in a little bit similar to um, the, the Cat's Table.
0: Right, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of it, but I think there was a, a, a quite a clear bridge between Cat's Tables and mm-hmm. this book. I mean, The boy there is 11 years old, the boy here is 14, but he's also an adult in part of the book. And I mean, I think also in Cat's Table, the narrator is 11, but he's also in his thirties, looking back and t- right. retelling the story, and and this book, Nathaniel is fourteen, but we see him as a twenty-nine-year-old or something like that, in the second half of the book.
1: It's a great age—a great age for boys—that that that, um, that shift from boyhood into adolescence—and yeah. seems to be a time that you're interested in quite a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I, I I left Sri Lanka when I was eleven. I came to England, and was eleven? Yes. And you know, it, so it was kind of. a you had to partly re- reinvent yourself in some way, or be easily uh, guided by people who were good or bad. You know, so in that sense, that that interested me.
1: Sort of looking for guidance. Maybe.
0: Looking for guidance. Yeah, looking for allies. You know, I mean, I, I think that that whole cast table thing, where the boy can can watch adults around him, very much like a dog. You know, not, uh-huh. not, he knows who is safe. To, to approach, who is not safe to approach,
1: and and a sense of people being connected in some mysterious way that yeah. you have to read the connections in some way to understand a new place that there may be some secret map yeah. that so, you don't know yet.
0: Yeah. So I mean, all the I mean, when the mother comes back at some point in the book, you'll be glad to you know, or perhaps not glad to you know. Um, you no, know, we're all <laughs> glad to know that. <laughs> 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 but you know, I I I think. The, I was, we were talking before that about Michael Morris and this, this Conrad ship that was put on top of the National Theatre Centre and that had an influence on me because I was asked to go and live on this boat that was just like the boat in Heart of Darkness, a very strange project mm. and and write about the Thames And I, I, so I started doing research on the Thames and hundreds of professions that were there in the 1700s and the 1800s yes. I mean more professions there than in the rest of the city, practically, you know. Uh, and uh, so that kind of inspired me to, to look, so look at into the this yeah. But
1: I, I was looking at some of the motifs that recur and the interest in this. And, and they're all boyhood, in, yes. it, they're all boyhood right. um, interests. And yeah. that, that's what makes them so charming, in, yeah. in a way. You're really interested in explosions. <laughs> Yeah, I I hope you know. (laughs) Okay, I I
0: was interested in exposures. Munitions and and
1: things that go bang, you know. Well, I
0: know, but I I have to tell you that I was not interested in exposures in this book, but they became important. Yes, they they
1: surfaced. And and it's
0: it's something to do with, I mean, it's it's like how do you plan a novel? Do you you kind of plot it out or do you not plot it out? And I tend not to, I don't don't really know very much, and they gradually come into focus as the book goes along. But also with research, you know, people do intense research before they begin a novel, or But I, I hadn't done. So one of the things that happens in the book is that there was there was a discovery of research quite late in the day in the book, and the whole issue of Waltham Abbey comes in, which I had no idea about its existence. And then I went there, and you know, so some pool that was kind of part of a lyrical scene earlier on suddenly had all kind of ominous wartime connections.
1: So the, you, you found explosions in the book,
0: not by intent,
1: not, and they were there anyway. <laughs> they so, were oh, there. oh, they're wow! The... I knew there was going to be <laughs> ammunition's factory here, yeah. and and then turning. I mean, the thing about ex, explosives is that they're unexploded. But it's quite, yeah. and so there's, it's quite a beautiful idea of the darter driving trucks full of nitroglycerine. Yeah. yeah. Across yeah. London, three or four times at night in the dark. Yeah. In, in the, is that where the word warlight comes in?
0: Uh, yeah, that it comes in twice in the book. Once earlier on when he's working with the daughter on the barges with the dogs. Oh yes. And then, and then he starts discovering what he had done during the war.
1: So this is quite beautiful. The idea of the liquid. The, yeah. I don't know if you saw that episode of Mission Impossible where they have to get the nitroglycerine out. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've to, seen all of them. But I can't remember ramps, that scene. Up over ramps, and they have to do things with oh, so the nitroglytherin, yes, 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 yes. so that it won't explode, yeah. there's liquid, so yeah. I thought that was, that's just, <laughs> by the way, uh, okay. But the other interesting <laughs> thing
0: that you're saying is that it is a boy's story, and, and, you know, and in fact, Rachel does not want to be part of this story, you know, I mean. She spins off. Yeah, I mean, she's she's unforgiving to a certain extent about the mother, but, you know, she's also, does. I mean, she's not, she recognizes the damage in them, but. No, he, in a way he doesn't for a long time I think
1: so Rachel the sister is bound by that her love her love for her mother and the, her loss of the mother her love for the moth. that mm-hmm. you know and the loss I won't give away the plot yes. but the this this connection she feels is is uh, more. So more angry for the potential losses involved yeah, or yeah. more more tenacious or more yeah, urgent yeah. than think, Nathaniel's. Yeah,
0: and, and the boys tend to kind of be easily seduced into some kind of other world in a
1: way. Drift.
0: Drift, yeah.
1: Uh, then, as the transition after into adulthood, mm-hmm. it seems to me distinctive of your work that when love or romance or sexual love enters the book, it isn't as in a form of difficulty. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, it's as a form of kind of redeeming or easy or affectionate or as Olive of as we you know all of the darter and the goat. I mean mm-hmm. that you give that to some other writer, <laughs> <laughs> and all kinds of things. All you know it could be wretched in the extreme. Yeah. As you write it, it's it's absolutely fine. And so we have an the character, an optimist, yeah, hmm? an optimist, perhaps. Well, yes, it's sort of redeemingly good, you know. <laughs> but any other writer who had a woman obliged to eat a goat's eye that tasted <laughs> like <laughs> snot before having sex—it's <laughs> like it could go, it could, it could be written differently, you know. <laughs> but you have this wonderful and really this beautiful first sexual relationship with a woman who doesn't even have a name in the first part of the book does she she takes the name of the street where they are oh yeah
0: yeah yeah Ag- Agnes yeah. Uh, yeah
1: yeah do you want to tell us a bit about Agnes or well, does she wa- do- should she remain mysterious for well no I, I,
0: if I was re- reading something I could read a bit about her but it it, it is somebody else that he is a young. As a youth meets, she's also working in a, in a restaurant where he's working, and then there's a relationship between them, in mostly in abandoned houses, in, in London.
1: One of which is missing its back wall yes. because of the bombings.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there were, in fact, that was so evident in, in the various bits of research I did that a good percentage of the houses in, in London, even after the war, were kind of. Still greatly damaged, whole areas. Did
1: did you read Elizabeth Bowen's uh, The Demon Lover? No. That little short story is fantastic. Really? It's set along one of those streets with the cracks Ah, in the building. It's a short story? It's a a tiny little gothic story, yeah, Yeah, very very
0: nice. I read some very interesting, I mean, there was a writer called David Kiniston, I think. And, oh God, I can't remember the title to these. But he did these histories of of Britain. in this period, and it, it wasn't his story, he just collected thousands and thousands of anecdotes uh, from people that had been written, so what they listened to the radio, what was not allowed to be played on the radio, mm. even long after the war, you know. Um, it, it was just wonderful, very kind of uh, democratic, you know. it was
1: Right, like Studs Terkel or those, yeah, those yeah. oral histories.
0: Yeah, and he's done a couple. Uh, Austerity Britain is one of them. Okay. And then Family Britain is the other one, which right. is later on. But uh, so the, 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 that kind of research was kind of interesting. But Do you know alongside of the book
1: it, that, that popped into my mind and I wondered had you read it as a boy, was um the The Man Who Was Thursday by G. K. Chesterton.
0: You know, I I read that a thousand years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and then I tried to read it again and I couldn't read it. Is it awful? It it was very dated. Yeah, you know, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I read it a thousand years ago, and Chesterton, of course, is a Catholic writer, and was, when I was growing up one was told that he was a good writer, it wasn 't true really <laughs> uh, but but there is an it's idea very
0: respected it's still very respected the Well the father Brown stories were yeah, where I thought yeah, good, but the yeah.
1: man who is Thursday has this kind of vast conspiracy that turns out to be something in in that book theological, yeah so it it, 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 it sublimates into yeah. some other sort of right. zone. And I get some similar. You know, know, that there's a conspiracy that isn't a conspiracy. There are connections that are not malign, Mm. or they are maligned, you know what I mean? But it all is not as it seems Mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
0: definitely. I think that's, you know, that that you go on a lower level, I guess, or a higher Mm. level to find out what the mother was doing and all these. You know, the, the characters like the moth and the the daughter and, and some other characters whose name I always forget for some reason. Um, I, I have been hired by her as kind of guardian owls. Yes. You know, uh, to watch over them. Yes. And um, someone like Mr. Malachite, who's a guy who works in the in the country.
1: And you fell in love with uh, with Malachite, didn't you? Yeah,
0: very much so. Yeah. Mister, He's he, he,
1: another character who expands for being really lovely.
0: Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he didn't turn up until the second part of the book and uh, I, I, again, I, I, I adored him, but it, I, I, in, in fact, I had another section on him, but my various editors um, said, oh God, oh, you're going backward again. <laughs> kill <laughs> all <it>. your darlings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a good move. It, I have to say it was a good move, but it was a passage I liked, which was about Malachi coming back from the war I'll tell it now because I, 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 you can't, you know. <laughs> he comes back from the war, and he's sort of also slightly damaged by it e- emotionally, and he goes for a long walk around England for about four months. And he, he breaks into all these country, country country homes which have been already trashed by the various troops who've been living there. And I was very fond of this chapter. Mm. And, um, but it was sort of going backwards, and I just had to kind of.
1: But isn't that the kind of thing that you, do you pick up in your next book the thing that you couldn't fit into the last one, which sometimes happens? Yes,
0: but very small things. I think there was too much of that for me to go and, you know, reinvent him in a way. Did did
1: I read that there was something of that in this book that you had picked up something from your previous? No, maybe it was No,
0: I think it was in, in The Skin of a Lion, that there was a uh, Ambrose, something about Ambrose Small going mm. crazy in, in this room, and you know, as he's about to die. And I think I took something of that and took it into the English patient. Uh, and maybe.
1: some of the names. Now I should know more about this, but Hannah.
0: Yes, well, Hannah is a character from.
1: She's Alice's daughter. Yeah. Alice Gull's Daughter in The Skin of a Lion, and then Hannah, there's a Hannah in The English Patient. Yeah, same person. It's the same person, yeah. so your character's children yeah. so go I, on into the there are two the characters
0: book. left. Uh, when, when I finished In the Skin of a Lion, I, I just was heartbroken, where are you? you know, because it was the first novel I'd written where everyone was pretty well invented. So they were all aspects of oneself or aspects we imagined. And so, I mean, I wasn't heartbroken, but I was, uh, I was missing them. And I, I, I suppose then if you'd ask me who would go into the next book, it would probably be Tamlakov, the bridge builder, who, who seemed very interesting, but in a way I knew too much about him. But, so anyway, Hannah, who's the daughter in uh, Skin but, of a Lion, and Caravaggio, who's a thief in Skin of a Lion, both turn up yes. in, in this book. And I, I had to decide whether to keep them or not because I don't really like to repeat characters.
1: But you, you abandoned Temelkov because you knew too much about yeah. him. Isn't that so cruel? It's Was like, that? I have you now. I'm gonna <laughs> so
0: he's a bit like Mr. Malachite. I can't, yeah, you know. Okay.
1: But he also falls asleep in public, as it were, or in company. I know
0: you have a theory about it.
1: Have I a theory about it? I don't know. I just, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I could fall asleep on a train, but I don't think I can fall asleep in the middle of a conversation. But
0: Really? D- what would you mean, like... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, I can. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah,
1: no. I, I mean, I have relatives who can yeah. and do, um, but I, I, not, not me. Yeah. So it's slightly you're... mysterious. I mean, that, there's nothing more mysterious than that little yeah. thing about sleeping. Yeah, it's, yeah. Sleeping is very, I, I like that. Scene very mysterious. You know? <laughs> um, so this refusal to be obvious, you know, and you're hmm. saying something that's real, like this, the very real, very accurate, very. They like the the note of the crickets, you know? Mm. But it's not an obvious thing to say about a walk through the night. Mm-hmm. Nor is it like um, a kind of fantasized thing. There's very few no. monsters in the book. The very few monsters? Yeah, you've got yeah. you think of Yeah, it, yeah. no, I, I agree, yeah. Yeah, very few. Yeah.
0: I mean, it is a world that could easily turn into vengeance or danger, you know? Yeah. And that's that's off 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 the page or off stage or something like that, I
1: guess. Yes. Do you read a lot of um, uh, uh, thrillers, or,
0: or I read some, but I got fed up with them after a while. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, And, and um, I started to read this book, though. Um, the Riddle of the Sands. Have yeah, you read that? Erskine Childers. Yeah, wasn't he shot?
1: Um, I'm sure some member of the audience will tell you all about him here now yeah, in Liberty of... Hall. His son became a president of our yeah. country.
0: But he was shot by... He was shot as yeah, a spy,
1: yeah. wasn't he? And he did well, some in gun fact, running.
0: He, he was quite innocent, but I think he was, um, he was carrying a gun that belonged to somebody. And yeah. Yeah. Anyways, On like yacht, a, yeah,
1: there was a yacht. You, uh, there, there, there was a... But who knows? Somebody knows. I, like, I, know, I know I'm doing my leaving cert up here. <laughs> so, I, I, th- I think <laughs> before he, was, before he, was, shot, before he uh, was shot... he was shot. Google. Before he was
0: shot, he told his son to go and shake the hands of all those people who had found him guilty.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Quite saintly, actually.
1: Protestant, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: in the wrong world.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Quite a. That is. I mean, a fantastic figure, a slight outsider. Yeah. Uh, kind of.
0: But I, I read about the first 50 pages of that book, and apart from the usual racist stuff that happens in books of that time, it was actually very, very, very well written. Yeah. Yeah. But I stopped about.
1: And again, it's a boy's book. It's like Swallows and yeah, Amazons, yeah. and it's, it's of a, of a kind yeah, of an adventure style. Yeah. Uh, Biggles is not a million miles away from the Riddle yeah. of the Yeah, I know definitely.
0: Biggles, but in fact, well, Swallows and Amazons doesn't get a good review
1: in this book, I don't think. No, there, no it doesn't. <laughs> He's called me a crap and book. Did, did you, did you do, read Swallows and Amazons? I thought it was we, a really boring book. Yes, I well, we, I was
0: supposed to read it at school, and we were all bored by it. And all oh. the teachers loved it. Yeah. I'm sorry to the fans. No, it's I mean, true. And then
1: you go and you're in the fens and Nort, and you go, oh, "Fuck swallows and Amazons. and it, <laughs> and it made a, a very nice landscape boring before you arrive. <laughs> so, you know. I'm but, glad you said that. Uh, well, it just speaking in terms of you know this uh, uh, Biggles and yeah. it's also quite racist. Your, um, your first of all, the you, the mix of ethnicities throughout your work hmm. is, is distinctive. Um, and adds to this kind of thing where people say that you're not about the centre, meaning you're not mm-hmm. about the the man, the airman. Mm-hmm. You're about all kinds of other people mm-hmm. that are left out by history, one way or the other. Yeah. And th- and that gets quite quite almost romantic towards the end of Warlight, where you call out the other things that ha- that people did. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Which were, were are not a kind of tales of quite daring do, right. one way or yeah. the other. Yeah. Do you think being um, of uh, 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 so geographically... Something, um, hmm? something. Extended. <laughs> <laughs> so, being so utterly geographical yourself, growing up yeah. in... Do you think that has something to do with...
0: I mean, I'm not conscious of w- worrying about that, you know? uh-huh. but I, it must be there, certainly. I know when I wrote in the skin of a lion and someone said, oh, this is your immigrant novel. And I said, what do you mean immigrant novel? And in fact, practically everyone except a couple of people are immigrants to that novel. But it just seemed to be that it was what I was interested in when I was you know, writing this book about the building of Toronto in the early 20th century. Yes. And I mean, in, in many ways, it's not an ethnically varied book in this one, it's a very English, Englishy This Englishy one book. is, is yeah. not English. Yeah.
1: Um, um, but you, you, you went to school in England, you lived in Canada, you grew up in Sri Lanka. Yeah. No,
0: I, I'm certainly nomadic in that, yes. that sense, and I feel very lucky about that. I mean, I, the, the, pers- pers- the perspective is more than from one angle. Is, is
1: there in some corner of you a, a kind of grumpiness about, about definitions and identities?
0: Well, I, you know, they they always say, you know, I'm interested in writing about my identity, which I'm not really, I don't uh-huh. think, you know. It, Do
1: you know what it is? Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm i not, I mean, I, I'm a middle-aged Irish woman, who wants to be that?
2: <laughs> well, I, I uh, you I, know, I mean, some people have more that. exciting
1: <laughs> identities, you know, and, uh, or, or, you know, so identity yeah. is not necessarily a writer's. I I, 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 t- wasn't, I
0: wasn't thinking of identity and ethnicity I guess what, even when I was inventing Tamilkov and Caravaggio uh-huh. and other people I didn't think I don't think thematically. Okay. If, if that's an answer.
1: And your characters all work with their hands. They're very specific, they're very yeah they're very tactile. I mean, you use yeah. the word tactile curiosity about all of what yeah. They are
0: probably because as a writer I don't you know I'm not, I do have pen and paper and all those things. So there's.
1: So am I intuiting some kind of anti-abstraction, you know, like, that, that you're not so interested in talking about
0: Those stuff. big things, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, I tend not to talk about, I mean, partly because I'm, when I'm working on the book, I don't talk to anyone, so that uh-huh. I, I don't discuss it. So I'm quite secretive, so in that way. So by, they, they seem very real individuals as, as opposed to representatives.
1: And do you, are you then, do you find it onerous to be put in one place or KM. another critically in the, within the critical discourse? Which actually doesn't happen so much to you, I think.
0: Yeah, I don't think so.
1: No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a non-question. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it, throw, fling it open to the floor. There are two roving microphones. We're all going to wear glasses. That's the excitement. So we can see you. Actually, I've lost mine already. I've, I, I've lost my glasses. Has anyone seen my oh, glasses? Oh, you're
0: sitting them. Don't, don't sit down, don't sit
1: down. I'm sitting on them. Yeah. My...
0: The tension mounts.
1: Actually, I don't need my glasses to see uh, people in the audience. Somebody put yeah. up their hand. There's a lady there, she's there. Hi to both of you and thank you for your writing. Um, just want to ask um, Michael, why particularly post-war London?
0: Well, it's probably because you know I lived in, I, I came to England in the early 50s, and, and it was a time of uh, post-war propaganda. Films like Cockleshell Heroes and The Dam Busters and all stuff like that. So I mean, the war was not a kind of war that was present, but remembered a great deal. Like half the films made by the British, I think, even into the 50s, were, were about the war. But um, that was a landscape I I, I knew. Not, I'm not saying that those films affected me, but I, I think that was a landscape I knew. I I couldn't write about anywhere else, really. You know, I mean, um, and that was. A, I guess I really also wanted to write about England, you know, in a way, some aspect of England. Um, so that's why. There's question back there. Oh, sorry.
2: I have a slightly tendentious question. Are we still becoming despite or through slaughters?
0: Are we still becoming in spite?
2: Becoming or yes. coming? So- uh, becoming, you know, as peoples, if you look around the world at the moment, from Yemen to Syria to Palestine yeah. Yeah. to Northern Ireland to Brexit to Trump, are we becoming? Uh, are we still becoming? Because we're beset. Your book is set among slaughter, you know, the devices of the bridge, false bridges and so mm. forth, Coventry, which Brexit dealers yeah. have forgotten in this lifetime. Uh, uh, the Blitz? Uh, are we still evolving? Are we still in some kind of cultural becoming despite these slaughters? Or are we like Santayana's cliched quotation, you know, doomed to repeat? I,
0: I'm not sure how to answer that question. I, I don't know, quite honestly. Um, what about you?
1: Well, uh, except to say that I think the book is Interested in aftermath, um, as opposed to the slaughter itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like the English patient, it's a, a side room. Yeah.
0: Um, and I, and I think also in in um, Anil's ghost. I mean, something that I hadn't thought of at the time. Uh, but why I chose forensic anthropology as a as a profession for Anil. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to write a book about what was happening in Sri Lanka in that terrible period of, of that war and, you know, between various groups. But I, I really didn't want to write about the specific killings, you know. I mean, I, there, there is a kind of pornography of violence that happens, you know, uh, and, and I just, I knew I wasn't gonna write about it. So I, I, in fact, I chose the profession which was about the killings but not about the killing and so it was how she could look at a body and tell you how someone had died or how long they'd been dead or what had happened. And I don't know if that's invasive or not, but I knew I didn't want to do the other thing. And um, so it was a way of talking about, what it, about the horror that had happened without depicting the horror firsthand, except for one scene in the book.
1: Was, was there violence in Sri Lanka when you were growing up?
2: There.
0: there was some violence, yeah, certainly, yeah, there was, but on a very small scale compared right. to what happened later on.
1: Okay.
0: And back there, too. So.
2: Thank you. Um,
0: at this event last year, Werner Herzog talked about how literature is more of an influence on his films than other films are. And My was favorite, me? sorry. Ver, okay. Werner
1: Herzog at this event
0: last year. Uh, talked about how literature is more of an influence on his films than other films are. He's more influenced by literature to make movies. And who said this? Right? Werner, Herzog? Werner
1: Herzog. Oh, Werner Herzog, okay, yeah. 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 Uh,
0: my favorite books of yours are books like Coming Through Slaughter or The Collected Works of Billy the Kid that are like rhythmic pericope rather than straightforward narratives. Yeah. Um, there are books that don't always feel like books,
2: and I like that. I'm just wondering if, it's, if that's similar with you, where some of your work is influenced more by things other than literature, than literature itself, and what those influences yeah, might I be. Yeah, I think
0: that's true. I, I think I'm more interested in other art forms. I mean, I, I, I love literature. I read like crazy, you know, I mean, uh, so I, that's not a the, the problem at all. But I think what interests me is learning about... Um, the arts that I'm not good at, are music or painting. You know, I'd love to be able to do those things, but and it's almost like, is there something in there that you can kind of help migrate into fiction or something like that? You know, and I think there are things that that you know you can learn about craft from other art forms. You know, and I, I'm I'm sorry, when I'm reading a novel, I'm, I'm enjoying the novel. When I'm looking at a painting or or doesn't Go to an opera now and then. I can see things happening on stage that, hey, I could use that. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, that's you can jump from there to there suddenly, and you know, miss 200 years or something like that. Uh, so all, that all, always interests me, especially visual, the visual arts. Collage was a huge thing for me, you know. Um, but uh, I have a Werner Herzog story because he wanted to, to uh, adapt. Um, coming uh, with the kid for the stage, because his sister is a theatre director. And he said, I hope you don't mind if I change a lot of things. <laughs> <coughs> so I said, sure. I'm not going to say, no, to Werner Herzog. Yep.
1: Thank you very much for the reading. Um, I just wonder, you mentioned about um, Joseph Conrad yes. and the boat, I'd yeah. like to hear um, about that in more detail, um, because I think um, I'm certainly thinking of in The Skin of a Lion and I think I detect aspects of Conrad in that work, oh, really? and I'd like to find out about how um, you're influenced by Conrad, if at all. Thank you.
0: I can't remember the Conrad reference to in The Skin of a Lion, but anyway, I mean, I, I think Conrad is one of these big boulders, you know, in in 20th century literature that one had to kind of climb all over and then leave behind or be influenced by. You know, I mean, um, I always like that connection between Conrad and Ford Max Ford, which seems such a strange pairing. And I mean, Ford claims that he worked with Conrad on *Heart of Darkness*, and they. They took the first paragraph and they took the last paragraph. They just slightly t- 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 talked it, you know, as it was completely different as a result. So I'm more interested in the, in the in the craft of someone like, what happened to Conrad with Ford or something like that. But I mean, I'd certainly read a lot of Conrad, yeah. yeah.
2: There's
0: a question there.
2: Hi. As you said and as I've read in your works that your characters do tend to come back later on, but in this book, Rachel never comes back except briefly when she has a son and that's about it. So was this because she's angry or because you const- consciously wanted it to be Nathaniel's voice and not hers, or, or do we, should we expect her to crop up in one of your later yeah. words like Hannah does?
0: <laughs> Probably not, actually. Um, it was a problem with Rachel. I mean, I, I almost, I, I had a kind of little sequence. No, I, I, I wrote a little thing where she kind of critiques the book at one point. It was a bad idea, so I forget that bad idea. Um, and then there's a the father, you see. I mean, there's these two characters who are waiting for re-entrance. Everybody else has re-entered the story. And um, forget the father, but I, Rachel was more difficult. Because I think. because she, in fact, had pulled away from the story more than, you know, um, she just didn't want to follow the path that he was obsessively following re- regarding the mother and probably following the, following the wrong story in some way. So I just I just think that there was nothing more for me to say to say about her. I mean, there was probably a lot of things to say about her, but it, it is from his point of view, and she's slammed the door on him, I think.
1: You, you can't overpopulate your, your, your novels. Right,
0: exactly, yeah. I mean, the father thing would have been really difficult to bring him back, I and mean, I didn't really want to bring him back, you know. I mean, um, yeah. I was asked by an editor or two, what about the dad, you know? <laughs> but then I, luckily I saw this movie, oh uh, God, what is it called now? A Cary Grant movie where he, called Monkey Business, have you ever seen yes. this one? Yes. Where, you know, he, he keeps taking this drug, he's a, he's a confused scientist or something like that. He keeps taking this drug, which makes him younger and younger, and then his wife keeps taking the drug, that makes her younger and younger, and there's this very odd scene towards the end where they're getting younger and younger, and she's sleeping in a bed, and the house next door, uh, a woman comes by and leaves her baby with the babysitter. And, and then the baby you know, escapes the, the, the yard and, and crawls into the bed with the wife. And she looks over and thinks that's Cary Grant reduced to a baby. Okay, so that's, that's, okay, that's funny up to that point, right? What does she do? She picks up the baby, jumps in the car, and drives to the lab to see if they can get him back to the normal age. But there's no discussion what happened to the baby and the mother, you know, and the babys- babysitter's been fired you know, or arrested, one or the other. But I just love the fact that you know, Howard Hawks said, ah, no one's going to care about that <laughs> <laughs> preparation, you know.
1: It's a device. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I, th- I, I did try that on one of the editors. They <laughs> said.
1: But Malachite is a kind of other father then. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah.
0: And then yeah, Malachite and you know even the guy whose name I can't remember. Um, I
1: mean, there are m- multiplicity of of fathers in the book. I mean, yeah. Yeah. There are. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need any more. A good idea has many fathers.
0: (laughs) Anyone else? There's a question here. Uh,
2: Yeah, I I was listening to you read your poetry earlier, and I wanted to know, I'm a poet as well, how that uh, comes from a, a moment you want to express yourself in a certain way or... What's the difference for you when you write poetry? So
0: from from addressing yourself, do you say? Address?
2: Well, just the yeah, the voice nice. is so different in yeah. poetry than in prose. So, yeah. is yeah. that a moment you want to say something in a poetic voice or?
0: Well, poetic voice sounds ominous to me. You know, or suspicious. I mean, I, I'm not. I know. I know exactly what you mean. But that phrase is kind of okay. dangerous. But. Um, I mean, I know when I'm, I, I, mean, I, I, I have written poetry even after, when I start writing novels, but I know when I moved from poetry to fiction, I wanted to keep uh, so that an element of poetry in the fiction, the, the element of not saying everything, you know, so that the reader is also a participant in how they read a novel as opposed to, as well as how they read a poem. Um, there's a much more intimate voice certainly in poetry than in the fiction, but then you have to kind of it's like this wagon train that's got to keep moving on, you know. But I, I try and get to that voice. I mean, I, I think the voice is there in this book, you know. Um, uh, but it's also a voice that's kind of got other things to think about. I mean, when when he says the thing I read, what does the boy know? You know, what does the boy know? And then about three pages later, he says, What did that boy know? You are kind of you are it's, you're talking from the point of view of the fourteen year old boy and the twenty nine year old boy or whatever it is, he, whatever he is there. So there are other things you have to kind of deal with. I'm but
1: going I, to ask you to read us out with the, a little bit. Is, okay. that, is, that, yeah, sure. is that too after the fact? No, that's fine. A uh, little piece about Agnes Street. Yeah, I'll read that, which I think is very poetic. If I there you throw are. my thank in. you. And the the work has the generosity of poetry
0: as well. Okay, so so this is a scene with Agnes, who is um, his sort of girlfriend, and a very interesting character, anyway. And um, meanwhile, he's been helping the daughter kidnap, not kidnap, but smuggle dogs into England on the waterways. So another plot is going on over there. And this is a scene where he's, he's... He's got all these dogs in the car that belongs to the daughter. On other nights, there would be a change of plans, and I'd drive into the city alone. A few dogs asleep steep against one another. Not even the blaze of city lights woke them. I was to meet Agnes in another of those empty houses. She opened the door. One minute, I said, I ran back and ushered the dogs into the small front garden so they could relieve themselves. But without a pause, they rushed past me and leapt into the darkness of the house. We followed the excited barking. Once again, there was no possibility of turning lights on in the three-story building. We heated two cans of soup on a blue circle of gas, then settled in on the second floor so we could watch each other and talk in the spill of street light. We were more at ease now. There was less tension as to what would, could, and should not happen between us. We drank the soup. The dogs rushed into the house, rushed into the room, and out again. We had not seen each other for a while, and if we hoped our night would be passionate, it would be, but not in the way we expected. I didn't know enough about Agnes's past, but no dog had ever entered the rooms of my childhood. And now in those large, semi-dark rooms of this board house, we wrestle them to the ground, their long mouths warm against our bare hearts. We raced from one room to another, avoiding street windows, signaling each other with whistles, the dogs like pale anteaters in the half-light. We followed them into distant rooms, met them coming down the strict, narrow darkness of the stairs. Car lights filled the window, and I saw Agnes naked to the waist with a hound hanging off her hip as she lifted down to a lower landing, the one we had discovered was nervous of stairs, a sacred moment in my life. I carry secure within whatever few memories I hold from that time, filed, labeled in that half-completed way, Agnes with dog. Unlike other memories, it has a location and a date. It was during that last days of that torrid summer, and there's a wish in me to know if that long-ago teenage friend of mine still remembers and thinks of that series of board houses in East London and North London the three-story house in Mill Hill, where we crashed our bodies into dogs that were in chaotic delight after being restrained for hours in the back seat of a car, now scattering their racing clo- now scattering their racing clothes like high heels up and down the carpetless stairs. It was as as if Agnes and I had given up every desire except to run alongside their high-pitched barking and virility. We were reduced to being servants, butlers providing fresh bowls of water that they slurped without grace, or throwing remnants of our stolen sandwiches into the air so they were leaping high as our hands. They ignored thunder when it came, but when it began to rain, they paused and veered towards the large windows and with tilted heads listened to its suggestive clicks. Let's stay the night, she said. And when they curled up to sleep, we slept on the floor beside them as if all around us These animals were our longed for life, our wished-for company, a wild, unnecessary, essential, unforgotten human moment in London during those years. When I woke, a dog's thin, sleeping face was beside me, breathing calmly into mine, busy with its dreams. It heard the change in my waking breath and opened its eyes, then shifted position and placed its paw on my forehead gently, either as a gesture of careful compassion or superiority. It felt like wisdom. Where are you from, I asked it. What country, will you tell me? I turned and saw Agnes standing, already dressed, her hands in her pockets, watching and listening to me.
1: Thank Thank you very much.